Our scripture reading this morning is John 14, 4 through 6. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's word. It is great to be here this morning, great to be up here bringing you the word this morning. Go ahead and be turning your Bibles to the book of John chapter 14. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, First, I want to say thank you for the chance to be here and to speak to you. I've had opportunities to speak at the Men's Fish Fry, at uh, our Acts 2 ladies luncheon uh, last week, uh, did the, the communion last Sunday, and just it's been a lot of fun to get the opportunity to speak. I love the process and preparation of preparing a message. I love getting to actually get up and do the message, and I'm grateful this morning to be able to stand in front of you and bring this message today. I have um, thoroughly enjoyed these last couple of months that I've been able to get ingrained into the, the ministries and the fellowship of the people of First Devan. Um, last night, we had a lot of fun with our youth event, our fundraiser event, where we had a basketball tournament, and I uh, played basketball for the first time in probably 20 years, and did not die. And um, <clears throat> no one went to the hospital, and, um, and they barely beat us. Like, the adults almost won. So um, it was a good night. It was a great night, and I encourage you next year, we'll hopefully do it again next year. I think we're planning to. And I encourage you to be there. It was a lot of fun to watch and a great opportunity to help our students raise money for their trip uh, for camp this summer. All right, so every time I begin, the first time I get to speak or preach to a group of people um, at a church that I am serving at, I love to go back to who is Jesus and talk about who Jesus is, because he's the point, right? He's the object of why we're here. He is the, the linchpin of everything that we do. And when I've had the opportunity to preach a series, to open up a series at a church where I was the senior pastor, I would start with a whole series through the seven I am statements of Christ. We're going to look at one of those this morning, one of the most famous ones uh, of those seven that, that Jesus here says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to approach it a little bit differently than I usually do. Usually I'll focus in on that passage and and go through it very expositionally and walk through verse by verse. I'm going to go backwards a little bit this morning. We're going to start with that passage. We're going to start with those verses, but then expand out a little bit and look at the context of what's going on in those verses so that we can see really kind of get a better picture of what's happening. And hopefully uh, we'll, we'll be able to kind of understand the context. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the statement itself. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and what that means, we're going to look at the context of the statement, how that affects the way we understand it, and finally, we're going to look how this statement in its context applies to us. How can we take it? How can we use it? How can we apply it to our own faith, to the way that we uh, exercise our faith, the way we interact with other people, the way that we love and serve Jesus? So let me read these verses again. John chapter 14, verses 4 through 6. Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I like to think through the tone of Jesus' response here. I I have this theory. It's just mine. It may be wrong. But I have this theory that almost all of these statements where Jesus says, I am whatever. He is saying it out of the most annoyed and exasperated place that he possibly can. Because most of the time we see these statements, the people he's talking to have had a very wrong understanding of who he was and what he was trying to accomplish. And he finishes up the conversation by saying, I am that. If you think back to John chapter 6, the the, the feeding of the 5,000, 
Jesus does this incredible miracle. There's, there's 5,000 men there, probably 10,000 people or more in total. And Jesus takes these two lo- or five loaves and two fishes. He shares it, tears it apart, and feeds all 10,000 people. And there's leftovers, 12 baskets. So there's more leftover than what he started with. He does this incredible mi- uh, miracle to, to teach them a point to help them learn something about who he is. And then he gets on a boat and goes across the ocean. The people follow him across the Sea of Galilee and they get to their side and they're like, hey, Jesus, can we have some more food? And he's like, yeah, that's not the point. They're like, yeah, 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 sure, sure. Bigger point, yeah, spiritual stuff. But, but that was really cool what you did with the food. You know, we could do that again. And that's, can we, can we have some of this bread? And he says, no, the bread is, is, is the spiritual thing that God is passing. I was, okay, give us, give us bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And so we see here that Jesus is saying, look, I, I, I'm, I'm going a direction. I am making things happen. There's this very spiritual thing that Jesus is trying to communicate to his followers. And Thomas is like, we don't know where to go. Just tell us where to go. We'll, we'll follow you there. We just, we just don't know what that is. And Jesus is like, I am the way. It's me. I am the way. And often we see ourselves, we find ourselves in this place where Jesus tries to teach us something very spiritual and we get stuck in a very physical, temporal kind of application for it. So hopefully we can find a solution to that through this. So let's look specifically what we say. The very first thing, Jesus says, I am. Now in his expansion of the New Testament, Kenneth Weiss has this incredible translation of the New Testament where he basically stretches it out into the, the, every possible nuance of the Greek language, translating the English. And the way he translates the statement, I am, he says this, I alone in contradistinction to all others. Saying, Jesus is not just saying, look, I am this thing. He's saying, I am the only one of these things. There's nobody else who can make this claim. There's nobody else that we can even take a little bit of what I'm saying and try to apply it to themselves. I am separate from everything else, apart from all other things, the way and the truth and the life. So when he says the way, literally he's talking about a path or a road, but Jesus is identifying not some direction to follow, but a person to follow himself. He's not talking, he's not trying to point us to the way. He's not trying to teach us about the way. He is the way. He is the one to follow. He's he's bringing them to himself. There's no program, no method, no self-help, no manual, no training or nothing that can replace knowing and studying and learning and loving Jesus. And he's telling his followers here, look, this is it. In fact, the earliest believers called themselves the way. Before they were called Christians in Antioch, they called themselves the way. That's how they were known. And it kind of comes back to this. Jesus, the one they were following, is the way. And we are identifying ourselves by who we're following. And that's Jesus who was the way. He also says, I am the truth. And there's two aspects of truth I want us to deal with this morning. The first one is this. What is true? We live in a world and a time... It's been there for a long time. It's been being brewing for centuries. But the idea that there is no real standard truth, there is no objective truth, there is just my truth and your truth. And truth can be what we want it to be. We can shape it and mold it and turn it into something. And it all depends on all these different things. But in reality, who decides what's right and wrong? Who, who are you to say that what I'm doing is right or wrong? Who am I to say that what you're doing is right or wrong? Well, if we have a standard of truth in the person of Jesus Christ, then that's our standard. What does Jesus say is right or wrong? And then how do we apply that? 
And we see this objectively too, right? Um, my, my, my philosophy professor in seminary had this argument, apologetic for God, this argument for God that he had developed called the aesthetic argument for God. And he had noticed, and he made a good point, that every single one of us, with very few exceptions, no matter your background, no matter your race, no matter your culture, no matter your age, no matter anything, can stand in front of the Rocky Mountains and go, wow, that's beautiful. Or stand in front of the ocean and say, wow, that's incredible. Now, how is it that no matter what our background is or whatever our experiences are, we have that same reaction to seeing something like that that's beautiful and amazing? And his argument was, it's because there is a standard of truth in beauty and our standard of truth in how we see things that is bigger than us. And Jesus here is saying, I am that standard of truth. Now, it's not just that we know what's true, but secondly, it's important that we believe, that, that we know that what we believe about Jesus is true. Who was Jesus? It's hard to deny, and some people try to, that there was a historical Jesus. We know there was an historical Jesus. We actually have more historical documentation about Jesus than we do some of our founding fathers. There's no real debate over whether or not Jesus existed as a person. The question is, what kind of a person was he? The question is, what did he actually do? What did he actually accomplish? And there are some that will try to just say, yeah, yeah, he was a great guy, but he wasn't God. I'll try to make the argument that he never claims to be God. I'll deal with that in just a second. But, but there, there, there's this kind of thing. Maybe he was a good teacher. We can take the Sermon on the Mount, just take Matthew 5 and 6 and separate that up from everything else that he said and didn't say, well, this is good stuff here. Let's just believe that. But can we do that? Can we take those parts of Jesus and separate them from his deity, separate them from the, 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 the teachings he had about the exclusivity of his ministry and about salvation? C.S. Lewis actually dealt with this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept him. I'm sorry, I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You can't take what Jesus said. I gave when I was teaching middle school, I'd give my students these, this kind of experiment or a thought, thought experiment to say, to think about if, if we went to downtown Memphis and we're walking around and there's a guy who's a street preacher, he's gotten pretty popular, pretty famous, he says some cool things and we go and listen to him and he starts saying, oh, uh, yeah, do good things, love people, be kind, treat the poor well. And we're all going, yeah, that's good stuff. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with that. And he goes, oh, and by the way, I'm God. I don't know. He says, and by the way, he gives some vague references to the fact that he's going to die and then come back from the dead. And they're like, ah, I don't know about that. And then you hear that he did die, and then people are saying, no, he came back from the dead. I just don't know. We don't give that person up. It kind of makes everything a little bit suspect, doesn't it? That's what Jesus did. 
So we can't separate those things out from each other. We have to believe all or nothing. And by the way, Jesus had, there's this argument that he never claimed to be God. There are multiple times that he does. But more than that, there are times where he gets accused of being God and never corrects the record any other way. Multiple times where they accuse him of saying he's God, that he's committing blasphemy by claiming to be God, and Jesus, didn't, Jesus doesn't go, whoa, 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 guys, I think you're misunderstanding something here. I didn't ever said that. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He just keeps going. He just accepts their claim and says, I mean, if that's what you think. Because it was true. Because he believed it to be true. We have to believe that Jesus is God, that he condescended to become like us so that he could die like us, yet, unlike us, he could overcome death so that we could live forever like him. Jesus is God. Jesus came to earth to live like us, die like us, but then resurrect like we, ne- we never could, that we can live with him. So he is the way, he is the truth, and finally he's the life. And there's two sides to this. First, he's a source of life. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, not the turn that will be on the screen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living thing. Now, if we look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see very clearly, it says, let us make man in our image, right? We have the plural form of that. There was more than one personhood up there with God. It was God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were active in creation. Paul goes even further in the book of Colossians chapter 1, where he talks about Jesus says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, for by him all things were created. Jesus was doing the creating. At the command of the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was at creation, doing the creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is above all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only is he the creator of life, he's the sustainer of life. He's he's the reason that we don't just fall into a puddle of bits and pieces in the floor. He's the reason that everything still moves and works the way it does. The fact there's order in the universe is because Jesus is holding all things together. He holds all things together. <clears throat> and at the end of this, he makes a pretty profound statement that I don't know that they really got in a moment where he says that no one comes to the Father except through me. And this shows us a kind of two-sided aspect of our gospel. First, it's very inclusive, right? Anybody from any background, from any culture, from any race, from any gender, from any, any, any experience, from any anything has the opportunity to respond to the gospel and believe and become a follower of Jesus Christ. Just like he said in the video, the gospel is to all people everywhere. We go and we share it. It's incredibly inclusive. And there's a beauty in the gospel that we all come together unified under that banner of Jesus Christ, no matter what our differences are. But while it's very inclusive, the gospel is also very exclusive. There's only one way. Whatever your background is, you can respond to the gospel. But there's only one gospel. There's only one way to the Father. And it's not mean to say that. It's incredibly loving, actually, to say that. 
right? It's not, it's not rude to say, look, you can have life forever. You can have joy. You can have peace and contentment and fulfillment. You can have all of these things. The thing is, there's only one way to get there. That's not unloving. It's actually incredibly kind to say, I, we know. We know that the, the way to get to eternal life, the way to get to eternal peace and fulfillment and contentment is through Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. So that's the truth of the statement that he made there. Let's look at the context just a little bit. Um, the biggest context or the larger context of this part of the book of John is, is Jesus and his followers are on their way to Jerusalem. Early in the book of John, uh, it tells us that Jesus had kind of directed his face. He's, he's making his way toward Jerusalem. And as they go to Jerusalem, we see a lot of stories along the way in the second half of the book of John. We see a lot of stories where he, uh, Lazarus, Mary and Martha, uh, he, he runs into different people, has different conversations. And all of these are happening in the context of him making his way toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now what's waiting for him in Jerusalem? It's almost Passover. He's headed to the cross. He knows this. His disciples should know this, but he's having a little trouble getting to understand it. But Jesus is on his way to the cross as this whole thing happens. Now, the, the more slightly more immediate context, <clears throat> excuse me, this is after the Lord's Supper, but just before Jesus' arrest. So if you think through the Easter story, think through, uh, we're just a handful of weeks away from Palm Sunday and Easter. If you think through that story, uh, this is after the triumphal entry. After all of that, we have the Lord's Supper. They all come together. They're meeting in the upper room. And we're going to look a little bit more of that in just a minute. All of that has happened, but they're finished with dinner and they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to pray and the disciples are going to fall asleep and he has to wake them up. And then Judas shows up with the army. All those things, right? This is happening right in the middle of all of that. Okay, so you have a picture of kind of what things are going on, how things are happening. Now, the immediate context here is two really, really big things. I want to give you just a quick, quick kind of overview of how our chapter and verse things came to, get, came to be. Because I think it will help us understand this a little bit better. Um, when John wrote this, he didn't sit down and go, okay, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Oh, that's good. Okay, verse 2. That's not what happened, right? John just started writing a letter, right? He was writing a letter to the churches. He was wanting to tell the story of Jesus, what happened, how it happened, all that kind of stuff. He's just writing a letter. In fact, all of our New Testament was written that way. All of our New Testament letters from Paul, he was writing to churches or to individuals. He just wrote a letter like we would. Then later, people realized it's kind of hard to find stuff. Like, I, I kind of remember Paul said something. I think John said something about this, but I can't remember exactly what it was. They had to flip through the, well, flip. They went through the scrolls, right? They had scrolls. They would go through all of that. And somebody said, you know what would be helpful is if we organize this and put a few chapters, we can break it down a little smaller. Then we're going to do verses, break it down even smaller. And then we can say, well, John 14, 6, and we'll all know exactly what we're talking about, okay? Now, for just a little bit, let's throw all that out. Because well, you can't really understand John 14 for all it has without really understanding how it's connected to John chapter 13. Because it just happened. And the two things that happen in John chapter 13 at the very end is the Lord's Supper. Jesus identifies Judas as the one who's going to betray him. And he identifies Peter and tells Peter and, and warns Peter that he is going to deny Jesus three times. So we see both of these things happen immediately before this passage. So the first point there, I want, I want to look at these specific things. We're going to look at Judas and his relationship with Jesus a little bit, and we're going to look at Peter and his relationship with Jesus a little bit. First point is this. 
and it's in your bulletin. Jesus is not unaware of your sin and faults. Jesus is not unaware of your sin and your faults. If we go back to chapter 13, verse 21. John says, After these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of, of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table by Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus if, for whom he was speaking. So Peter, they're, they're, they're at dinner. The way they ate dinner, they kind of lay on their sides at a very short table and eat off of it. John is right beside Jesus. He always refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. They're, they're right there beside him. Peter's on the other side. He's like, John, John, ask him who he's talking about. What, what, what's going on here? Jesus answered, verse 26, that it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. That after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you were going to do, do quickly. So Jesus, in a matter of moments, it's about to have this whole speech about let, not letting your heart be troubled. and We're going to get to that. But I want you to focus in on this. He knew who Judas was. Jesus was not surprised. Like Judas didn't show up in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus would be like, whoa, 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 Judas, what's up? What's going on? No, no, Jesus knew who Judas was. And for three years, they had walked together in ministry. For three years, Judas had walked by Jesus' side, heard him teach. Jesus had been there and showed him these things. When the disciples said, and, 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 and Luke earlier in, the, in the, their time together said, Lord, teach us to pray. Judas is one of those disciples. He is there with Jesus for three years, walked and talked and served. Every time it says that Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Judas is included in that. All the way up until earlier in chapter 13, where Jesus comes to his disciples who were there at the dinner ready to eat. And he takes off his robe, wraps a towel around his waist, gets on his hands and knees in the dirt and washes Judas' feet. He knew who Judas was. He knew what Jesus, Judas was thinking he knew what Judas was about to do, and he served him anyway. Now, we're tempted, I think, as humans, to come to Jesus, to come to church, to come to the world and be like, if they knew who I was. If, if God knew who I was, if God knew what I'd done, he knows. And I say that as an encouragement. He knows. And he offers himself anyway. So how does this affect us? Well, how do we treat those who we know to have a past or a present that's not so pretty? Jesus didn't set an example of saying, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know if they would fit in with this, this, this group. And we're pretty godly people. I don't know if you would fit in very well. No, Jesus took off his jacket, wrapped a towel in his race, got down in the mud and washed his feet. So how do we serve? If we come across people that we know don't fit the, the mold of what we would like us to be or to look like, how do we treat those people? How do we love and serve those people? And secondly, how do we respond to our own sin in this? Because Judas' response is not pretty. Judas, at the end of this, has deep remorse for what he did, but never repents, never turns back, never says, ah, 
I get it, Jesus, and accepts the grace that Jesus offers. And we find Jesus, Judas hanging himself out of guilt and shame for what he had done. And this is contrasted with Peter's story where Peter actually repents and Jesus gives him ministry to do. We're going to get to that later. But, but, but remember this, Jesus is not unaware. And that's a scary thought sometimes because I know what I think and I, I know what I've done and you know what you think and done. Is, is Jesus knows that about me? Yes, he does. And he offers you grace. And he gave his life for you, knowing you. Second point, Jesus is not incapable of using your feeble faith and obedience. Jesus is not incapable of using your feeble faith and obedience. I worded these this way intentionally. It's kind of a double negative almost that he's not incapable and he's not unaware. But I think it's helpful for us to remember Sometimes we, we fall into the, 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 the comfort, comfort of life or, or we start thinking that, that maybe I can get away with stuff. I've gotten so comfortable in my sin. I've gotten so, so, so just done with or relaxed with or whatever. My faith, it's not all that strong or not all that good. And we sit there and, and we think that Jesus doesn't know who I am and he can't use me. But that's not true. I'm fighting against that thought that Jesus is not unaware. Jesus is not incapable. He can use your faith as feeble as it might be. Let's look at the interactions he has with Peter. Um, first, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking about that he's going to die. He, he, he makes one of the first predictions of his death. I'm going to die. And Peter, God bless Peter, man. He, he, was, he was not afraid to say he was thinking. He was not afraid to stand up and be the person that would speak what everybody else had on their mind. He was not afraid to say what he thought needed to be said. And he said, Jesus, no, 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 no. I will not let that happen. I will protect you. I will stand between you and whatever else. I'm not going to let that happen. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, thanks, Peter. I really appreciate that. What does he say? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. My bad. You know, I can imagine Peter was thinking at that moment, like he thought he was saying something really good, right? And Jesus is like, no, 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 you have missed it entirely. All four Gospels record that in the garden, when, when Judas comes with the Roman cohort, that he shows up and Peter pulls out his sword and takes a swipe at one of them and cuts off his ear. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, Peter, thank you for standing up. No, he heals the man. Tells Peter to put away his sword. This is, this is bigger than us. This is bigger than you. This is bigger than what you're trying to make happen or stop from happening or whatever. This brings us to John chapter 13, verse 36. Remember, this is just after Judas has been identified as the betrayer of Jesus. Moments earlier, Jesus has said, one of you will betray me. Judas, this one who's been with us, will betray me. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Now we know in hindsight, Jesus is saying, I'm going to die a brutal death and so will you. That's what Jesus is saying here. But Peter doesn't quite hear it that way. He says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. 
says, you may be willing to lay down your life. You, you may be willing to die for me. At least you think you're willing to die for me. But you won't even stand up to people who accuse you of having even known me. And you're going to deny me three times. And we see this come to pass a little bit later in the Gospels where Jesus is on trial and Peter is standing around a, a campfire. We get this kind of picture of Jesus, uh, Judas standing in a crowd of people. And people start noticing Peter. And start saying, hey, 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 you were, you were one of those guys that was traveling with him, weren't you? And Peter's like, oh, no, no, wrong guy. Not me. Maybe I look like him. I don't know. I just have one of those faces, whatever. Not me, right? And they said, no, 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 I'm pretty sure it was you. Even your accent, like you sound like you're from Galilee. I think you were one of those guys. And Peter's like, no, it really wasn't me. I'm telling you, it's not me. And finally, this little girl comes up. She's like, I remember you. You were with me. So he, he freaks out. He starts cussing, throwing a fit, runs out of there. And then the rooster crows. And it's just this moment. And, and, and I've seen videos where like, he sees Jesus' face. I don't know if that's 100% true, but Peter realizes Jesus was right. Jesus called out the sin I was going to commit, and I did it. Peter was focused on the wrong things. Peter was so focused on the temporal, on the immediate, on the physical, he missed what Jesus was trying to say. So when Thomas then says in John chapter 14, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where to go. We don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way. I've been trying to tell you this for three years. It's about me and what's going to happen to me and how I'm going to die. And we have that same problem. And we have the same weak faith and weak obedience, because we don't always get what he's trying to teach us. And we think that our sin and our faults and our failures somehow hinder us from being used by God. A friend of mine from seminary, um, he's a pastor in North Carolina now. I heard a sermon from him a few years ago, and this is one point he made. He said, uh, he said Jesus saw the real you. He saw you in your deepest, darkest moment. He sees every dark, hidden crevice of your soul. He knows what you're looking at. He knows what you've thought. He knows what you've done. He knows. And it's that worst version of you, that most embarrassing version of you, that is the version Jesus came to save. That is the person that Jesus loves to save. He's not unaware and he's not incapable Jesus knows who you are, and Jesus has chosen to use you anyway. So final point, start landing the plane. Bring your weak faith. This is our application. Bring your weak faith. So why does Jesus tell us not to? Let's look at verse, chapter 14, verse 1. The first thing he says is, let not your hearts be troubled. But remember this, in, in context, right? Judas is going to betray me. Peter, you're going to deny me. Let not your hearts be troubled. The worst things that you could imagine happening are about to happen, but don't let your hearts be troubled. <coughs> why not? Verses 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to, sorry, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where you are, that where I am, you may be also. He's already working on your behalf. He has already planned all this out. The moment you find yourself in this moment of, of decision of faith to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus or bring him your weak faith and, and let him use you, he's already been working. He's already been preparing a place for you since eternity past. 
Before, he, before the Father said, let there be light, and Jesus made the light, before that happened, he's been working on this. He is preparing. There is planning and preparation, but that fulfillment is in the future, and that fulfillment is eternal. And he's promised to take us with him. When he says, that not let our hearts be troubled, the Greek word that John uses for troubled, it means wrecked or shattered. Don't let your heart be broken completely. It's the same word that John used in, verse, in chapter 13 when Jesus, uh, Jesus considered Jesus, Judas' betrayal, where we just read a minute ago. It's not there won't be questions. There won't be, not that there won't be uncertainty. It's not that there's not going to be any difficulty. But your faith won't be broken utterly. Where we follow Jesus may not and often doesn't have immediate tangible results. And that's what Peter and Thomas were looking for, right? What's happening now? And Jesus says, there's bigger stuff going on here. But we bring our faith, even our, wake, our weak faith, first to Christ. Bring your weak faith to Jesus. Two weeks ago, uh, David mentioned, he mentioned it in his sermon, one of his points was it's not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that counts, right? It's not how, how well I believe, it's who I am believing. It's not how good I am at obeying, it's who I am obeying. That's the point. That's what we focus on. So you bring him that. Jesus knows who you are and can use you in spite of you. So bring him your faith, as weak as it may be. Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, yet we feel the need to, to just put stuff on our shoulders and, and, and put things on other people to say, yeah, 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 grace and gospel and all that stuff, but you need to do this, this, and this before you can be acceptable to me. And Jesus says, nope, bring me your weak faith. So we bring our weak faith to Christ. We bring our weak faith to Christ's church. This must be a place of grace. This is a place where people can come and they can feel like they're going to be welcomed and loved and served to Jesus. It must be a place we can carry each other's burdens. Where else can we go if we have things we are, that are weighing on us and that we're dealing with and that we're hurting with and that the world has done to us? Where's a better place to go than our brothers and sisters of Christ in the church that God has called us to? This must be a place we submit ourselves to each other, we submit ourselves to each other because Jesus expects us to focus on eternal things, namely on him. So my challenge to us today is this not, let's not make Jesus get annoyed with us. Let's not let Jesus get exasperated with us because we have this misunderstanding of what he wants us to be doing, that we are focused on the eternal, that we are focused on the things that are invisible, the truth of verses 6 and 7, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, that is grace to us. We see the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life as a compassionate means of grace. It's a confirmation that he is sovereign. He is the sovereign Savior. And even though we are certain to fail and falter along the way, we should not let our hearts be troubled. Because it's not about us. It's about him. And all of this, our approach to church, our gathering on Sunday mornings, or the way we, we interact with the world around us during the week, our gatherings together, our times that we serve and worship and fellowship is all about him. And he has promised to build his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for the truth that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. 
Thank you that you've provided a way to you, God, that, that is, it is all about what you've done. It's not even about us being able to accomplish things to come to you, but you have done it by sending Jesus to die for us. And God, I pray this morning that we will believe that and that we will use that and apply that to our lives, God, and that we will uh, change the world by sharing it with others. God, I thank you for being patient with me. I thank you for being understanding with my weak faith, with my weak obedience. Father, I pray that you will just remind all of us of that truth. And that we'll come to you and lay it at your feet. And submit ourselves to you, to be used by you for your kingdom. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. And Father, we thank you for Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the hope that he brings, the gospel that we have to share. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen.